Hey, what's up? It's Mr. Bill. The track you're listening to right now is the result of a 35-hour tutorial series where I recorded the process of making this song from start to finish and explained myself along the way. If you're interested in learning how to make music or sharpening your craft, go to mrbillstunes.com and check it out. Enjoy the tune. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Oh, awesome! Which, I requested uh, it. Oh, really? Oh, that's fucking awesome, man! I'm glad that that uh, I feel honored because I'm a big fan of your music and I know that you're like a OG of house music and I've been listening to you for years. So Thank that's you. crazy. I know that you're an OG of bass music and I have also been listening to you. And I actually like that you do like instructional stuff. I watched some of your like. Um, kick bass really whatever like some of your some of your content all oh, right yeah like keeping the wait did you also write and... did you also write that uh slap or uh so i didn't i didn't program it but i worked closely with a team of people who did program it i had and... that i used it a, a bunch of times on this album oh awesome that's sick yeah i'm glad you're getting use from it um cool man well yeah i appreciate you coming on i'm excited to chat with you and um yeah uh so i guess the first thing i'm curious about is why you're switching to barclay crenshaw from claude von stroke i know i'm like, crazy I had well, easy <laughs> easy peasy i had it but uh i'm switching I never want I always want to be careful because I never want to be a negative person. So mm. I just over it. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I for a minute. I played house. I so when I was a little kid, I was very much into rap music. And I made a rap album when I was like eleven. And then I did a lot of like hip hop stuff in high school. I had a radio show. Then I got into Jungle, but kind of by accident, and I really, I just couldn't believe that I I missed like the first part of that, and then I just heard it kind of like midway, and it was already super crazy sound design by then, and I just couldn't believe that that existed, and that I had just missed it, and then I. Uh, Somehow I started making that stuff, but somehow I got good at house. I lived in Detroit and I was always bouncing between LA and Detroit. I kind of like grew up in Detroit and then would keep going to LA to like try to be in movies or something. But I would always end up back in Detroit for a year or two. It's just too complicated to explain all the back and forth, but Detroit, you nobody does bass music. Mm, yeah, it's techno up there, right? Detroit techno. So I, so I was like, 
I don't know if you can really relate to this, but uh, if there's nobody from your city who's done what you want to do, then it's really hard to see a path. Yeah, I mean, also, I think that there's some level of uh, wanting to fit in and sort of copy the people around you. You know, that's why, like, um, accents exist, for example. You know, I have an Australian right. accent because I grew up around a bunch of people who were only doing that in terms of their vocalizations, and therefore I do that in terms of my vocalizations. And right. Since living sense. in America, it's gone slightly more towards an American accent because now I am around people who only vocalize that way. And, yeah, I think the same applies with anything you do, really. And where did you move to in America? Where are you? I'm in Atlanta now, but when I first moved to America, I moved to Denver, and I was there for five years, and then I was in San Francisco for two, and uh, now I'm in Atlanta. Cool. Atlanta's on my, my hit list of, like, cities that I want to go to with, like, 100 beats and just see what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly, this is the place to do it. Rap music here is yeah. massive. Yeah, so, I mean, pretty much you nailed it. Like, I... I was into jungle and I tried to pull that off in a few like small bars and and then I was like I even did it in a couple of illegal raves this huge like live setup with a mixer and everything and I would set up for three hours and seven people would come to the D room in the back <laughs> corner and dance like maniacs and I would take it down for two hours and a hard drive would glitch and I'd lose all the files and all that stuff happened many times and then I just, I picked up on why I liked house and techno also. And I kind of figured out this place that didn't exist where I, like I, I love Green Velvet. And I figured out that he cracked the code on making a track that is silly, but also cool. And that mm. is really hard to do. And I just that just became my lane and I just got good at it really fast. And then I, once it's like something kicks off, you're like in it. And then I got trapped in it for 20 years, not trapped, amazing love, love all of it. It was super fun, but I always wanted to do bass, hip hop, jungle, all the, all that stuff. Mm. Were you ever tempted to sort of just slowly uh, pivot the Claude Von Stroke project over to that? Or did you always kind of know that you wanted to do it as a different project and completely separate it from I knew brand? I wanted to separate it because I have been around house people for so long that I know how they think. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like not, purists or whatever. They're probably not going to be into it, so why fight them? It's a good and point, yeah. So I did this as a side project in 2017, but it was very clearly a side project. I made an album and I toured it for half a year, but... You know, unless you're going in, like, lesson to everyone out there, unless you're going in 100%, it's not worth going for it. Yeah, I agree. It's um, it's almost like wasted effort. It's kind of like you're sort of shooting these shots that are just falling back to the ground and never really hitting anything. Um, where does the name Claude Von Stroke come from? Like, where... What do? Because I know Barclay Crenshaw is like your actual name, but yeah. how'd you, how'd you come up with Claude Von Stroke? Um, it's kind so, of it sounds like it's kind of a joke name. Almost, it is so. a joke name, a hundred percent. 
But ev- like the funny part is that everyone in Europe thought that was my name when I would go over there, and I only. <laughs> I mean, I did as well. Like the first yeah. time I heard of you, I just ass- I didn't even think. I just assumed I, that's his name. Well, when I started, there were only gigs in Europe, so I I went to Europe like every other weekend because I had young children. Also, I had a crazy schedule, so I would only play in like Germany, England, Spain. There were no real gigs over here. Not like there are now. So they all thought that was my real name. But the back to your question is, uh, I was hanging out with these guys, like the original Dirty Bird crew, and uh, we did mushrooms this one day, and we were just hanging out in San Francisco. And I don't know if you remember Global Underground CDs. No, but I they don't. would always have a picture of some. Hot trance or techno DJ looking off into the sun with a <laughs> pair of like Ray Bans, like they were too cool to look at the camera, and they always had some like German or Dutch name. And so I just all of us started naming ourselves international uh, techno DJ names <laughs> in the group that I was with, and I mine was Claude von Stroke, and these two girls that we were with remembered that. And I was playing one of their birthday parties the next week at this small bar, and this girl, Nicole, made a flyer for her party. And instead of putting my real name, she said, Nicole's 24th birthday featuring Claude Von Stroke. <laughs> and I never changed it back. Nice. Yeah, I mean, why Why would you? It's a great <laughs> name. So wait, before that, you were doing houses, Barclay Crenshaw? I mean, yeah, I was, yeah, pretty much. Okay, gotcha. That's interesting. Um, no releases, but yeah. Right, right. Uh, I'm curious about Dirty Bird Records because that has sort of blown up in a massive way. Um, I'm curious about the history of it, like how it started. Um, yeah. And sort of where, where you think it's going. And then I'm also interested in other things like the acquisition by Empire and yeah. a bunch of other well, stuff like that and NFTs and shit. We can get into all of it. But yeah, I guess a good place to start is the history of it. Well, let's start at the end, and then I'll tell, go back a little. I don't work there anymore, which could be a shocker to everyone watching. Oh, listening. yeah. I did not realize that. <laughs> that just happened. Um, Is that just because of the acquisition by Empire Records? Partially, but I also really wanted mm. to do this. Right. And yeah, running a label is a shit ton of work. It is, and they wanted to stay on that dirty bird house trajectory and i was like i'm just gonna confuse the shit out of everyone by staying here and like half running this and like half doing this and i just said i would rather jump off a cliff and like just eat it but 10 million percent than just like half and half it just keep half and halfing it and not, and everybody just like, even you right now, you're like, you don't know what I'm doing. Like, you think I'm working there and nobody knows what's going on. So that's the end of this story. How I got there is crazy. But um, I did it for 20 years and it was amazing. And I just decided that I was going to go back to my original plan after that time. But Dirty Bird has been such an 
huge part of my life. Uh, it started with just a bunch of people doing free parties in Golden Gate Park. Then I decided to make it into a record label in 2005. I probably worked half of 2004 just prepping it. And I, uh, before that, I made a DVD documentary on how to become a famous DJ, interviewing all these like people who were massive at that point, like Paul Van Dyke and Timo Moss and Derek Carter and Charles Fieldgood. Anybody from like this era will know who all these people are, Sandra Collins. And uh, that let me skip a ton of steps. I also ran out of money making that. And it had, it had all the Detroit guys too, like Derek May and Juan Atkins and all those guys. And so I had to learn how to make the music that sounded like the people that I interviewed because I didn't have any money left to license <laughs> music from them. So by the end of that, that was really the catalyst so that I could really make house and techno by the end of making that film because I had made like 20 tracks as bed music. Mm. And I had to make it sound like a Derek May track or like a trance track or whatever. It's honestly a great way to get good at the kind of music that you want to be good at. I've done the same thing, like trying to recreate tipper tunes or whatever. Yeah. I think it's a great way to learn for sure. It is. And you know, people get scared that, uh, oh, I'm going to put up this reference track and then my track's going to be the exact same. There's no way. It's going to sound totally I, different. Yeah, there's, there is so many aspects so many like forks in the road when making a piece of music that the chance that you take every single same fork that that person took is so unlikely and also there's just so many things like there's your specific peer influences your specific like environmental influences your biological influences like the shape of your pinners the depth of your ear canals like all sorts of shit um comes into play so yeah i think the 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 risk of that happening if you don't want it to happen, is very low. <laughs> I think if you want to make it happen, it's possible, obviously. Well, your mind just takes over if you're if you're thinking creatively. You just you're like, oh, well, I got this kind of just sound like it, which is all I really wanted, and now I can just make something totally different with like this sonic palette. Mm, yeah, totally. So when you were running Dirty Bird Records for like the last twenty years, yeah. Um, how much of it was like, how much of like the administrative shit were you doing like royalty stuff and uploading to DSPs and, and all of that? Were, were you doing like that stuff as well as listening to all the demos and picking and choosing what, what goes on and, and working with the artists on, on the, you know, release order and the artwork and the there copy was... and like, or, or were you sort of like just picking the demos and somebody else was doing the rest or? So there's definite markers in the path so i'd say from like 2005 to 2010 i was very much involved with royalties admin everything and that shit is the stuff that takes like yeah. a shitload of time accounting yeah. sucks 
I know. I can't even so, imagine. So, There's no way I've, we did it right for the first five years. No way. It's so fucking hard to get right, man. Like, I've got a label, and I also have a shit ton of collabs. And every now and then a collaborator will hit me up and be like, hey, that tune we put out like five years ago, uh, can I have some of the money from it? And I'm like, uh, yeah, give me give me like two days. <laughs> and I'll have to like go download a bunch of spreadsheets and figure it yeah. all out. And I find like for that kind of stuff on, on a small level like this, it's better to just do it sort of once every five years or something and give them their 50 bucks. Speaking to that, I just signed this album that it, that I'm doing to a label and they were like, you're going to have to pay the sub artists. And I'm like, that is a hundred percent deal breaker. I'm wait, 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 they weren't going to do the accounting for you. Not of the stuff, not of the vocalists. And I was like, that is a 10 million percent deal breaker. No effing way. Yeah. The whole point, that? like the only good thing about a label these days is them taking off some of the stresses of all of that shit. It's like, what, what else do you think is the role of a label in 2023? Yeah, I'm like, guys, come on, seriously. And then, yeah, so back to the timeline, probably like 2010. I, I started getting label managers in maybe 2009 or eight or something, but I was still like really doing it. I didn't even think like the first label manager worked for free because he was just super into it. And... uh then some point, God, I don't, I can't nail I'm so bad with dates, but at some point my wife came on and she is like a super high level marketing person from like all these crazy agencies and stuff. And she really changed the trajectory of the label from being bedroom only, like we just put out like, cool tracks to like branded events, clothing, everything company. She flipped Smart. it and she was really great at that. And now I'm missing that again because she's kind of almost retired at this point and I'm doing it all now myself again, which is I'm 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 for it because it's just really focused and I'm not like, oh, I have to bring up 80 different artists and like appease everybody's ego and like do all the stuff you were just talking about. So I don't mind this work because it's just just figuring out the the game or whatever it is. Just but it's just for one thing. It's not for 80 things. Yeah, there is something cool, I think, about being a part of something that's like greater than the sum of its parts but and I, I guess like something about being just on your own can feel a little bit like uh vulnerable or whatever but um at the same time yeah I agree with you I think just like focusing on one thing is gonna yield at least more um fulfilling results for yourself than than concentrating on yeah 80 80 different people's things yeah and I mean, to, to, for that, I agree, like for when I was younger, like being in a crew, which was more interesting. And now, you know, like I have like old kids and stuff. It's like, I don't need to be as much in like a gang <laughs> as I did when I was younger, if that makes any sense. Like I love making a collective in like a community, but 
I'm not going out at night when I'm not playing. You know what? Like, I I don't need to be in this like gang of people. I kind of know how it all works, and it, it's really helpful when you're starting though to be in a group because then you get to see what's working for your friends, what isn't working for your friends, what's working for you, what also like they'll make a track and then you'll try to make a track that's as cool as that track or better than that track. And then they'll try to make a track that's better than your track. That all that stuff is cool in the beginning. And I don't know if I need that as much now. So it's just easier to easier to focus. Hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so is the Barclay Crenshaw stuff going to be released on Dirty Bird as well, or is that going to be sort of a whole no. separate thing? Are you going to independently release? Are you going to release with labels or? I, I, there's, I mean, I can't, it's not, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this or not, but who cares really? But I can't start a new label anyway. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because really? Of, for a couple of years at least. So I have to release on another label. So I'm releasing i sent it to a bunch of people of places that i thought were cool and one guy got it if that you know one guy like totally got the whole thing understood what was happening liked it i'm and i'm more about send it to the place that loves it over sending it to the big place that is just putting it in the system because there was a lot of totally. big places, but I've already, I've learned the hard way. You got to go with the, the scrappy crew that loves it every time. Yeah. hundred percent. So it's on this new label called easier said, which is like literally a brand new label, but it's, it's part of, it's somehow part of red light management, which I'm not even managed by. But it's all like intertwined with that. Cool. I just like the label manager. Yeah, yeah, and that's important for sure. Yeah. What do you think uh, the sort of future direction of the music industry is, and how do you think that the evolution of the music industry has changed over the years that that you were running Dirty Bird and the years that you've been making music? Yeah, it's really clear to me, like crystal clear. It's like um, when I first kind of came out of oblivion to be a known artist, no one even knew what I looked like. Like it, it's hard to even conceive of this now, but most house and techno artists, you didn't know what they look like mm. in like... 2000 to 2010 even if you'd seen them live because it was just probably in a dark warehouse yeah it wasn't a thing it was like the non it was like you don't know what who's doing this really and you never really be, unless you're like richie houghton you don't know what they look like and uh so i came out of the gate purely on songs on vinyl records and now, like, my first tracks came out a year and a half before B-Port was oh, wow. founded. Do you that know was in 2006 so, or something? B-Port started 2006. My first track yeah. came out January 2005. Yeah, wild. So basically, there wasn't this whole other thing. 
it was vinyl records and people would hear your music by other DJs playing your vinyl records. So the difference now is that you have to, everyone knows what you look like. Everyone knows a lot about you and everyone has access to a lot of the things that you're doing. I won't say everything that you're doing, but the information barrier is gone. There's the gateway of having to press a vinyl and go through that agony and get test pressings back and have them skip. And then it's another six weeks so you can get the record out. And there's a meltdown in Czechoslovakia and you can't get the vinyl and whatever. All that stuff is gone. So you can make a track on Friday and put it out on Monday if you really want. And just the visibility of the artists is now part of the equation where it wasn't before. And that has changed the marketing of music dramatically. So it's really not only the songs. I mean, I think always at the core of people liking music, though, there was an aspect of like um, them basing their identity around the things that they liked. So, you know, people would be like, I like Tool and I'm a Tool fan and therefore, yeah. you know, I go draw the Tool logo on my school desk and that makes me cool, but you're a Metallica fan, so you're lame. And I think there's right. like still this aspect of that, but now the that whole identity and branding thing comes into play at a whole different level and, you ha and there's so many more like complicated com components to putting that whole thing together of creating this thing that people can like and, uh, yeah. Yeah. But before when you were talking about, like, if you like Tool, you might know what the guy's cat was named and you might know where he's from and you might have memorized the liner notes and you might have seen him play live. But you don't know every city that he's in and every single thing that he's doing. Like now it's like so much documentation. It's just totally. Right, but, but isn't that just more data for somebody to identify with yeah. now? I just feel like you could almost create, okay, yeah, so now you have to just be like 100% yourself, and before you could kind of make a mysterious ecosystem that maybe mm. was you, maybe wasn't, but it could just be like your Dungeons Dragons fake world, <laughs> and people would go <laughs> with it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think you can still do that, but it's a lot harder now. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the there is a lot of hiding to be done these days, whereas back in the day it was maybe a little easier to hide. Um, speaking of DJing, did you ever, I only just found out about these like six weeks ago or something. I was chatting with this dude named Nicky Nair and he was mm -hmm. telling me about locked groove record sets. Did you ever do those? It's basically, he was telling me there's like these vinyls that you can get and instead of it being like a vinyl that plays from start to finish, it's just like a beat that's yeah. in a circle on the vinyl and there's just like concentric circles on this vinyl and you just have like 20 of them with like different beats on them and you could like play an entire like two-hour set or whatever just using these by mixing them together in different ways and it's like the mixing of them all that kind of creates the set versus the actual tracks themselves. I mean, I know about lock grooves from vinyls, and I know for sure that's something Nicky Nair would explain to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd never Nair, heard of it before, but it sounded Nicky really interesting. Dirty Bird also, Nicky Nair. 
Really? Yeah, he's fucking awesome, man. He's yeah. great. Really cool. Um, yeah, I mean, no, I don't do that. But I know, hmm. I know what you're talking about because uh, I had a ectomorph record in like 1995 that did that, and I was like, "What is this?" And he just hmm. had the groove and a locked groove, and I was like, "Why would you want this?" But it, it makes <laughs> sense. I never heard of people DJing sets like that. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen it done, but it sounds uh, like an interesting concept. Um, I was reading an interview of yours before this, uh, and I read that when you're putting together a set, you just like to put together folders of tunes and, and then keep it all pretty free form and pick stuff on the day and, and try not to sort of pre-plan things too much, but rather play off the vibe of the room. Um, do you still do that with the Barclay Crenshaw stuff as well, or is that more sort of a house music thing? That's definitely a house music thing. But one of my main goals of this year, meaning to 2024 coming up year, is to get that good in this genre. The The issue for me, it was more of a time issue. So I would be doing both projects and I would just have such limited time. And there's so many BPM jumps on the Barkley sets. Mm. So I would definitely plan them way more be just because of what I was trying to get between yeah, sonically. Totally. But my goal is for next year to practice so much that I can just figure it out and mm -hmm. not have to do that. Cause I don't want to do that at all. It sucks. It's not, it's not as fun. And it's more like, you're just hitting shitloads of hot cues and like you kind of know what's going to happen mm. and that's kind of fun but it could be more fun if you really were out there risking it i don't know that's that i really want to get good at this and i think it's going to require a lot of practice cool yeah i'm glad to hear you say that actually because um I, I put out a video recently on my Instagram of my Lost Land set and the video was of the Ableton session that I used to plan the Lost Land set and I was just like scrolling through the whole session. It's a 650 channel session that's a, an hour long set of just tracks mashing into everything and basically what I, I, what I would do or what I did is um, organize the whole set that way. It took me about a month to organize and then I rendered it sort of all out as like essentially stems. And then, yeah, did exactly what you said, just like mashing tons of hot cues, like, and it basically was just like turned into like a live DDR game for me or something pretty much. Right. Um, but I, I put this video out and I got like fucking shat on, man, by so many people being like, this oh, is a really? pre-recorded set and blah, blah, blah. And, and I'm glad to hear you of all people who plays who who's like oh, i play music like off the vibe of the room and like you know true djing shit say that yeah bass music's different it's like it's, it's not it's difficult. not like yeah it's not it's not uh not saying it's not possible but it's really fucking hard to just put bass music on a drive and and play a clean set it really like i would go even further and say you can do it but then you're gonna sound like the guy that never leaves 140 or he'll be on 140 for 35 minutes and then he'll go to 160. Nobody realizes what, how 
much thinking it takes to go from 88 into drum and bass, then back down to 140 and then to 120 and then back to 85. And then it's like a, it's like a, you're thinking in concepts almost like mm. I collect tracks in conceptual I could, I'm thinking of it conceptually when I'm collecting it. I'm like, here's a sick 85 that I can double up <laughs> into a right. 170, whatever. You know what I mean? I think in BPMs now, which I didn't, you, in house music, who gives a shit? It's be either 124 or 128, and you can get to anything in the middle by just slightly moving the pitch knob. <laughs> right. Yeah, I agree with you. I think um, with bass music, there's definitely like areas there's like yeah your 88 halftime sh shit it is like right. your 100 and 110 like glitch hoppy stuff there's your 126 ish like halftime dubstep stuff and then 135 stuff 140 stuff 145 150 and yeah it's, it's difficult to play an exciting bass music set if you're just on the same genre all the time and yeah i definitely think it takes a lot of going between stuff which is and and not only that but for me personally, like when I'm building a set in Ableton, I'll get stuck on a tune on like what to play next yeah. for like a day or like yeah. two or three days. And I'm like, how the fuck do people figure this out in the moment? It makes no you sense. Have, I mean, when I run through the sets that I'm going to do for this project, it's minimum week and a half of just going through it every day. Nope, this is a bad idea. We got to go this direction. And then listening to it at the end and be like, no, the whole middle section is garbage. <laughs> like it's just you you have to listen to it as you're going and then you have to listen to it at the end and be like yeah there's like a part of this that sucks it's like the too low energy or whatever that's why i want to get to the point where i can flip it on the fly so that i'm not just trying to guess what the energy is going to be because mm. when i make it so that i'm playing it i'm really guessing what the energy is going to be just off of experience but i don't know mm. which sucks like you should be able to get it but i also don't want to play 50 bangers i hate that right so i don't yeah. know there's got to be some little mixed ground but what i have found as a solution to, to maybe help you and me and everyone is no one cares if you kind of wash it out and start over. Mm. I'll do that two or three times a set always because sometimes it's just, there's just no way out and you can just wash it out and start a new BBM. And that is yeah. okay. I feel like people are accepting that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would prefer that than somebody stay on 140 for an hour. Yeah. And maybe that's where you talk. <laughs> even right. though I don't yeah, really like talking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me either, to be honest. Um, so you reckon the solution is just going to be like putting everything on a drive and just getting on the decks and just logging hours on the decks pretty much? Yeah, I think that's the best case. I, I, I also think I'll have, I'll have it sectioned out so that I kind of know like these are the best, the best of the best at 80, 88. And these are the best of the best at 140. And I'll just have, I'll just know the material so well 
and I just said I'll just be able to figure it out. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think with house music, um, I mean, I don't really, I'm talking from massive lack of experience in mixing house music, but to me it always, it feels like there's just always this kick there with this energy and yeah. there's like always a offbeat hi-hat or a like hi-hat rhythm and it's just always got this kind of like similar energy but with i think bass music the energy comes from different things sometimes it comes from like a distorted 808 other times it comes from like a high lead synth thing other times it comes from an extremely gnarly bass other time it comes from you know the the drums being super punchy and tight or something and yeah i think it makes it hard to sort of figure out ways to keep the energy sort of consistent or ebbing and flowing in a nice way in a set whereas with house music you kind of it's like a known quantity before you mix it in if it's a house tune you know it's going to have those known quantities in there for energy absolutely and that actually makes me think of something else which is i'm not actually trying to just become like a bass dj in this project so when you hear the album, you're going to be like, what is going on on here? <laughs> like, Is the album done? Yeah. It's when not does it come out? out? It starts in January, and, it's, and then it, uh, the full album is like March. Start of oh, March. same as me and my album. Okay, cool. Awesome. We're going to be album release brothers or yes. AKA competitors. <laughs> it's okay. But... <laughs> Yeah, so my album is just like there's a couple bass tracks on it, but there's like funk track. It's like anything that ever had to do with breaks or dub that I like. It's not just uh, bass music at all. So there's singing. There's all kinds of shit on there. So I and I want to kind of. I know it's a tall ask, but I really want to play stuff during the set that really doesn't fit in <laughs> that people just kind of either they know or I can get them to like, but it's not the sickest bass drop. Are you familiar with Yeti? Of course. Yes. Yeah. I feel I'm like talking... he's, he's really good at that. I like just throwing in some crazy curveballs. Yes, that's true. But even him, he's it's still bass when he's doing it. He still mm. makes it sound like that. He's yeah, he's yeah. got some weird sounds. He's amazing. Mm. I'm saying it wouldn't even be bass. But I was right, still, just throwing a system of like, the down track or something. <laughs> almost like what Tidek High is doing. Okay. Yeah. Like where he'll almost just go into a completely different genre. Yeah, fair. What um what's the difference in the creative process would you say between the Claude von Stroke stuff and the Barclay Crenshaw stuff cuz I assume with the with the Claude von Stroke stuff when I listen to it I'm hearing like like Moog synths and like drum machines and it sounds like like legitimately like pure like analog stuff you know um is it kind of the same with the Barclay Crenshaw stuff or have you sort of switched over to more of the bass music norms like Serum and shit like that I have used Serum several times but i'm not i'm i'm on purpose i'm not getting too addicted and into that because i do feel like that has like this feeling Mm. that you can't escape but i'm not gonna lie and say that i haven't watched like 10 eprom instructional videos (laughs) 
<laughs> just to get stuff to sound good. By the way, I love Eprom. Yeah, Eprom awesome. is the reason that I started doing bass music. Uh, I mean, I told you that I DJ Jungle before House, but there was this huge span of time where I just didn't care and I wasn't into bass music. And then I heard Eprom's first album and then I was like, this is probably the coolest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, he's really forward thinking. His stuff is crazy. It's always ahead of the curve, I feel like. Yeah. So do you still, so would, when you're making the Barclay Crenshaw stuff, are you still using like modular synths and analog synths and stuff like that? Or are you... No, I didn't use any modular stuff, but I do use like uh, a lot of this Prophet 6. It's like analog synth, but then I am, it's, it is more in the box. I feel like you have to have a certain level of control. Um, so even if I record an analog synth, it's going to get worked after that. Right. If you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I like um, that. that uh, I use this uh, plugin called Rift a lot. Just to like, Yeah, yeah, by Minimal Audio. It's a good yeah, that's pretty good. That can really... There's, there's just certain things that house people don't know anything about. And it's how to get, because they don't, they're not required to get a sound to the level that a bass producer has to get it to. Yeah, I think bass music is honestly like some of the, like, uh, like technically most proficient producers I've ever met are all pretty much dubstep producers. Yeah. Like Virtual Riot, AU5, those kind of people. They're just like, in terms of the mix down and stuff, it's like you're, you're basically like trying to juice every point one dB of a luff extra out of literally everything along the way and, and tr try to get it basically being like negative four luffs but like clean and yeah. not distorted. And yeah, it's extremely hard to do. That part of it is can really do your head in. Very much, yeah. <laughs> and so I try, like... That's something I don't want to get too deep into. So I am willing to go 85 to 90% and just say fuck it on the last 10% because I feel like the last 10% is the difference between releasing an album a year later. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's actually true. It's funny how that last 10% takes the same amount of time as the first 90%. Yeah. So my stuff isn't going to be the number one best mixed down stuff, but they're going to be cool songs. And I think a cool song goes farther than the number one mixed down stuff. Yeah, I agree as well. I would prefer to listen to a sick song that has a less than a, a less than great mixed down versus something that's produced perfectly but is not a cool song. Yeah, for sure. Though, if you can get both, obviously. Yeah, that's, that's the. the <laughs> If I could get like a little computer assistant in here or something, do all these. <laughs> I, think, I mean, we're not that far off. Have you used um, Ozone Eleven, the new ice type stuff? It's got some I, pretty I did cool use that. tools in there. I did use uh, that a little bit at the end of the record. Just, yeah, that clarity module is really cool. You just put it on, turn it up, and it just like adds all the spectral bins in to sort of like fill out the sound. Yeah, it's cool. They're doing a lot of cool stuff. So I read in another interview uh, of yours that 
you started making music on an emu emac sampler do yeah. you still have that and do you ever use it still i'm such an idiot uh i was moving and i just had this tiny little convertible car and I literally remember leaving it on the porch of where I moved out of in like whatever year, just thinking it was kind of just junk <laughs> because I'd used it for like 10 years. It had seven seconds of mono sampling and now it's like a total collector's item. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it has analog filters, which I didn't even realize. I didn't know really what was in there. But, uh, yeah, man, that actually was so helpful to have gone through this, like, era of having to set up Mark of the Uniform form performa, performer MIDI only with, like, three or four pieces of equipment and just the absolute total nightmare headache of that and like getting everything to work and that stuff. It's like, I think that's why I got into reason first. Mm. It was more of a plugging routing program and I'd already learned all that. And so all my first house tracks were in reason because it was kind of like I identified with plugging the stuff in. So mm. in reason you flip it over and in the back, it's literally all the cables. Yeah. Yeah. And you plug them in and that's how you make that's how you connect everything and i i got that so that was like my bridge it was like real shit reason ableton what was the process like making music on real shit like how do you get from an emu emac sampler to a claude von stroke track well there were no claude von stroke tracks made on that that was more of like uh, i was making hip-hop in like high school uh, gotcha. But uh, yeah, you had to get a series. There was an Alesis MMT8 hardware sequencer, which was actually better than the computer sequencer. And it was like, uh, if you think of the PolyN tracker that's out now. Dude, I fucking love that thing. So that's what it was, but with just one line and everything is fucking confusing. <laughs> <laughs> and so that would trigger all your mid everything is midi and you trigger it and then you record it on a four track recorder which is a cassette tape where they've split the cassette so that it can record four tracks instead of one stereo track and so you could overdub on the cassette but you could really only do one electronic track and then the rest of it had to be live because there's no way to sync an analog cassette. Mm. So that's how you would do music back then. It was crazy. Right. Yeah, that's... Uh, I mean, I started when Ableton was a thing. Uh, when I started, I think Ableton 4 was the, the latest version that was out. So I kind of started there. But I was on a computer that only had 256 megabytes of ram so i could only load one thing at a time pretty much so i would have to load one thing do some shit render it and then yeah. put it in a folder and then do the other layer render it put it in a folder and then at the end i could like bring them all in put them together and have something that hopefully worked yeah i mean i did all that stuff too so like the after i didn't jump straight to reason i would do this uh 
what was that one? It was acid. Have you ever heard of Sony acid? Yeah, I've never used it, but I know what it, it is. It was like Ableton. It was like pre-Ableton Ableton, where you could stretch things. But anyway, whatever. That's mm. <laughs> It's irrelevant now. All that stuff was crazy expensive, too. Right. And now... So, yeah, but I mean, I guess it's like it's interesting coming from an era of having that creative limitation of only being able to do a certain amount of things um, and like having to sort of limit yourself to making the track cool in other ways versus people who get into music now and have just every possible thing at their fingertips, including information. Um, do you think there's any benefit to having learnt to make music with those limitations or do you think uh, it would be more beneficial if you were, say, a young kid and learning music today with everything at your disposal? I mean, I think there's values to both, but I'm Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think that it really depends on the person a lot if they, also, have, AD, yeah. if they have ADD or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's so, some kids that I know on Discord who are like 18 who, you know, have had Ableton since they were t 10 years old. And yeah. They're fucking insane. They're so good. I It's like... So... I, that is true. And there's, I think that uh, people can get intimidated because there's, there are always people that are better at Ableton than you or me or anyone. There's like thousands of people that are better at Ableton. And this is where I get back to the songwriting and, and kind of what you're talking about with the limitations. It's like, if you can write a good song, or have a good concept or a good idea for a song. It doesn't have to be like a lyric song, but it just goes way farther than being good at Ableton. Mm, yeah, it's agreed. just like the song matters and it will help you get past being the best engineer. Yeah, that's true. And I guess like coming from an era where you had those creative limitations of only being able to have four layers or whatever. The song ha had to be really the only thing. Like yeah. none of the production stuff could really be that exciting. I actually think a lot of the UK producers still kind of think like this. It's a definitely, I've noticed this. I don't want to generalize, but I noticed that there's like an ethos in England that's more like... I'm only using seven unfucking believable sounds. <laughs> and over here, it's just like, I'm using everything I can. But when yeah. you only use seven sounds and they're all unbelievable and you spend a lot of time on each one of those sounds, it's minimal, but it's really good. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never actually heard someone espouse that ethos, but it makes sense. Like now that I think about it, a lot of the UK stuff that I like definitely is pretty minimal and, and still pretty yeah. impressive. But they just really honed in on the sound. Like, but they're not, mm. they're not a lot of sounds. Right. Like I layer up a house track with like 30 tracks. I'm not that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think for house, if you're putting any more than that, you're sort of overdoing it a little bit. Like the, unless it's like 
bass house or electro fidget stuff or something. But I think generally, more often than not, I prefer a house track with less layers, you know, like that tune that Skrillex and Fortet put out recently or something like that. I, I love that shit. Yeah, often when house has too much going on, I feel like it's not what I'm looking for when I'm listening to, when I want to listen to house, I'm, I'm trying not to listen to a hundred layers at once. Yeah. I mean, that, but there are sometimes a hundred layers when you don't think there are. It's like the it's little shaker true, yeah. on the 18th bar or whatever, whatever. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, how do you decide when a track is finished and how long do you think it takes you to make a track? Well, how long does it take you to make a Claude Von Stroke track versus a Barclay Crenshaw track? And how do you decide when a Claude Von Stroke track is finished? And how do you decide when a Barclay track is finished? And is it different? It's not different, but I changed up my whole uh, thing on this album in particular. So before, for any type of track that I was making, I would just make the track and mess with it and tweak it and make it and make it. And then I would finish it and then set the release date. But for this album, I said, why are you, why do you work like that? What is the reason why you can't just say you're going to work this amount of hours a day and you're going to be done on this date? So this album, I said, I have 80 days and whatever is done on the 80th day is the album. And that's what I did. And I actually think I got way more done because of that way of thinking. And it was really the amount of focus that you can get when you do an idea like this is crazy because, you know, there's always like this one person who lives in Vermont who did a vocal who doesn't respond to like 17 emails. <laughs> and then, you know, and then you go, you know what? I'm getting this resong and it's done. Right. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> the, you can get trapped in features. You can get trapped in paperwork. You can get trapped in a million different things. You can get trapped in bass sounds. But if you make a set amount of time and you say, just write as many songs as you can and finish enough for there to be a record in 80 days. So the best part is, I was like, oh, we'll barely make 10 tracks in 80 days. I made like 250 loops. Oh, wow. It turned into 10 tracks, but I still have the 250 loops, and they have been paying dividends even after that. This thing that I just released with Of the Trees was part of that loop session. Mm, that's a great and song, the by the way. And that I was sending to Strategy, he didn't make it on the album in the 80. He literally, Strategy was going to be on the album, and he didn't make it on in the 80 days. And then I, and then <laughs> I was like, Tyler... We st I still have strategy emailing me. <laughs> we can just put him on our new thing. So, like, it's still working. Mm. And that was my concept. Not everyone will agree with it, but I just wanted to try something new and just to challenge myself. And I think it was cool. And I like the results. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like a, it's another creative limitation, isn't it? You basically yeah. said... Uh, the limitation is 80 days and because of that you had to find creative ways around problems like 
oh, the guy from Vermont's not doing the thing. I only have X amount of time. That's a limitation. Then I have to figure out a way around the problem. So, you, yeah, I mean, it seems like a... I noticed this during the pandemic, no no time limits. Like, basically, my time limit usually is I got a show on the weekend and I need to have X, Y, Z done for the show. And uh, in in the pandemic time, I, like, had no shows. No, no one did. So, yeah, I found I was just, like, it took me way longer to get shit done yeah. because I didn't, I wasn't forced to have stuff done by a certain time, which was kind of nice, but also obviously less productive if you don't have time limits. So yeah, I think time limits are really healthy. Yeah. I mean, I, I made the completely incorrect prediction that like 10 million albums were going to come out the day that COVID ended, but <laughs> nobody did shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It got yeah, everybody true. kind of got in this vibe of like, well, there's nothing happening. Nice. So I got I got like one more thing I want to talk about before we wrap up. Um, how do you balance life stuff with work stuff? Yeah, I mean, that is one of the reasons why I'm not working at Dirty Bird any longer. And I I canceled some of our events and so I I I was getting to the point where I was like a festival promoter, clothing designer, uh label runner, and then music making was like fifth. Right. So I was making like two records a year, three records a year. By records you mean single tracks? Yeah, or? not even like records. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, sometimes it would be more. And maybe there would be a couple of remixes, but it's pretty poor output for someone who says that they're a musician mm. as their job. Right. And I was like, you know, if you keep on this trajectory, it's just you're just gonna kinda like do the Homer Simpson into the bushes. Mean, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> like, slowly back into the bushes. So you're gonna be like a festival promoter. Great. Is that what you set out to do? So I did a lot of festivals, Dirty Bird Camp Out, and all that stuff. So the answer is it's the same as the beginning of the interview, which is I really just want to focus now, and that because I'm focusing, it almost seems like. I can't even believe that I was doing that other stuff because even now I'm like, wow, I'm really busy. Mm. I can't even believe that I was doing the six other projects. So I don't know. That's not even really answering your question, but I, I make time for my family and I make sure that I don't tour too much and I have weekends off all the time. And one thing that's been really good is that my wife and I were working really closely together on Dirty Bird, and now we're not, and we argue way less. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so that has been awesome. So Dirty Bird camp out is no longer a thing? Uh, I don't, I'm not going to say that yet. It's not official, yeah. but I'm gonna, we're trying to, like, Still figure that one out, but we canceled Dirty Bird Camp in last week, which is the Florida one. Mm. And I'm not doing Dirty Bird barbecues anymore. And Camp Out is still iffy, but 
it's probably gonna morph into something else or or not happen. Mm. I you I would think, and I mean, and I don't really know because I've never been in this situation before, but I would think that like after growing a brand like that, actually I know people who have like grown festival brands before and then when the festival is like a brand, they've put like 10 years into like building it and whatnot, they like sell the festival to somebody yeah. else and then somebody else takes over running it, doing everything and they just get like paid for the brand or something. Yeah, so Dirty Bird Camp Out, how can I say this? It's like too good. It because because it only has like five or six thousand people, no one wants to buy it because right. <laughs> so because over that when you get start to get over that amount of people, I don't know if you've ever heard of this. But in the festival, there's four color teams that are competing for the win at the end of the festival, and there's like camp games the whole festival, and once you get over like six seven thousand people that part of the festival becomes somewhat unmanageable. Mm. And so the festival kind of has this like finite, awesome number. And therefore I can't sell you Dirty Bird Camp Out and, and have you turn it into a 50,000 person festival because it's just going to be ruined. Mm. Fair. So you like- know how to explain it, but it's, it's a tough sell. If someone yeah. wants to buy it, I will sell it to you. I still own it. So if anyone listening to Mr. Bill podcast wants to buy Dirty Bird Camp Out, I'm all ears. <laughs> as long as they keep it a five or 6,000 person thing. They just have to and... keep it fun, yes. If yeah, they, yeah. they want to make it bigger, they have to have a plan. It can't just be like Voldemort buys it and like turns it into a 40,000 person shit show. Yeah, I'm... I figure like, yeah, once you get over sort of seven or 8,000 people, you're, you're really starting to deal with the logistics of a small city. Yeah. I mean, we already are making a small city just for that. It's a four day camping festival. So it is a small city, but it becomes a bigger, small city becomes a mid middle size city. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like lost lands, right? It's like 40,000 people. It's like the size of like some, some named cities. (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, wild. Well, hey, man, thanks again for coming on the podcast. It was awesome finally connecting with you and chatting. I had a lot of fun. And, um, yeah, stoked to hear the album and stoked to see what, what happens with the Barclay Crenshaw project. Thank you. I'm stoked to hear your album as well. I guess they're coming out at similar times. Yeah, I can send it to you before anyway. Yeah, I'll send you mine as well. Exactly. Uh Hopefully I'll see you. I don't think we've ever met in person. Is that no, true? Yeah, yeah, because true. I just met. don't travel in this like circle, but now I might be. Yeah, hope so. Yeah, I mean, you've done a lot of friends with, uh, you've done a lot of shows with my buddy Chris and we have a project together. So maybe. Ah, okay. Chris is what? Kill Smith. Oh, Kill Smith. Yes, yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, my yeah. first tour, he was the he went on the whole thing with me when I did that mm. album in 2018 or 17 or whenever that was. He was my guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's awesome. awesome. Yeah. Cool. All right, man. Well, um, yeah. Thanks again, and uh, I'll chat with you soon. Thank you. All right. See you, man. Have a good day. You too. Bye bye.
Yo, what's up? Thanks for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. This show is produced and edited by Robert Fumo. You can get early access to the show by going to my website, mrbillstunes.com and paying me instead of Patreon. And remember to go rate and review on iTunes or I'm going to come to your house and punch your dog in the throat, upper deck your toilet and fuck your partner. Note, I may or may not do those last couple of things. Uh, You should probably just go rate it on iTunes or Spotify or whatever it is that you listen to the podcast on because it really helps the podcast. Um, But but just know that, that it'll go a long fucking way to me not doing those things if you do go do that. So uh, just, just putting that out there.